0: Welcome to another great episode of Murray Musings. We have a very special guest who we're really excited to talk to. I'm sure you've heard her voice before, as she's the co-host of the Racket Magazine podcast, but also the co-founder of Racket Magazine, Caitlin Thompson. It's a pleasure and honor of ours to amplify women's voices in our tennis community. Thank you for coming on. How are you doing, Caitlin?
1: I'm good. Thank you for amplifying uh, and supporting women's voices. I think it's important. And I'm obviously happy to be here representing all women. So everything I say will be in, uh, in representation of every single woman.
0: <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> and of course, we have on our uh, co host, uh, Scott, how are you doing? Uh, so, I'm a little bit stressed,
2: it will surprise no one uh, who listens to Murray Musings, to no one who follows me on socials, to know that I messed up this interview. Uh, like, we were due to start the, recording this 20 minutes ago, and uh, yeah, my laptop failed, and then my headphones failed, and then, uh, you know, my login failed. So, all I can do is uh, start off this episode by, uh, you know... Saying a big sorry to both Caitlin and Peter for my lateness uh, <laughs> starting this episode. Hopefully the rest of this uh, goes plain
0: sailing. But um, but apart from that, doing okay, do yeah. no right. <laughs> Tech issues always happen, especially during these times. So sure, that's fine. Sure. Okay, let's start off the episode. Um, I always love to start off by asking what uh my guests' origin stories are. Like, how did you get into tennis? Um, so tell us about um your life story, Caitlin?
1: My life story. Uh, This podcast is probably not long enough for the bloviating version of my life story that I will tell you, but the condensed version of tennis and maybe even media um, for me started really early. Um, My parents are both classical musicians who have sort of unorthodox schedules. Um, You know, they played uh, and performed a lot in the evenings and they went on tour a lot in the summers. And so as soon as I was... Old enough sort of to be left alone, I used to go um, out to my grandparents and I learned how to play tennis from my grandmother. It was her hobby. She was the coolest person I knew, um, pretty much the coolest person ever. And she had gotten into tennis sort of as a retirement activity. She was a nurse. Her husband was a school teacher, and she started playing tennis really passionately and started making her own outfits, and I thought she was the coolest lady I ever knew. And to sort of just be near her, I used to go out to the tennis courts with her. Um, And soon enough, a racket was in my hand, and she was teaching me how to play. Um, You know, and I think for me, having somebody love the sport so much as much as she did and just Uh have such a pure um, enjoyment of it has always really stuck with me, and that's something that even though I got to some, you know, competitive places with the game – later on in my life, I haven't ever forgotten that I play most of the time for myself and for the enjoyment of it, and if I'm not having fun, then, especially at this point in my life, then, you know, there's not there's not a whole lot of point. So, I play, started playing tennis as a very, at a very early age, um, and I also started a newspaper on my block where I would report on my neighbors, um, which didn't really go over well with my neighbors, um, <laughs> wow. you know, but I got some, like... <laughs> early lessons in like libel law and reporting and you know i sold it door to door i think for 25 cents um you know so it really made a lot of sense to me um you know obviously i went to to college and played tennis and i got a scholarship to the university of missouri which had a very good journalism program where i studied magazine journalism um And so even though, you know, my life took some twists and turns, uh, I was a political reporter, as we were talking about, Peter, before we started recording. You and I both Mm -hmm. have spent some time in the world of politics. Um, Eventually coming back to marrying these two, like, great loves of my life, which are tennis and also sort of storytelling and print media, um, Uh was really, really serendipitous when we started the magazine, um, and I guess now six years ago. So it all kind of came together in the end and makes a lot of sense in retrospect, but at the time, you know, these were just things that I liked doing. And I'm somebody who always indulges in things that I like to do. I don't feel any like guilt or, or, um, you know, I, I don't do anything really out of obligation. That's not really my vibe. So being able to do these things in, in in together in conversation was, was really, um, really felt like a privilege, frankly. And it still does, even though, you know, it's hard and running an independent business is not easy. So yeah, that's kind of the, the life story condensed in, Maybe
0: less than in four hours. That
2: sounds good. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Caitlin, for that uh, that brief rundown of your origin story there. Um, so yeah, you are the co-founder of one of the biggest uh, tennis media outlets out there, uh, the Racket magazine. Uh, we were just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how Racket came into being and how yeah how it got its start and yeah, how... How, how you started it really and where the idea came from, and um, if at all possible.
1: Yeah, I think we, uh, David and I, my co-founder, David edits the magazine and I'm the publisher. Mm. We started it with basically the idea that tennis wasn't having the cultural currency. It wasn't really in conversation with culture, art, music, history, fashion, style, um, travel, all these fun things, all these sometimes really interesting things uh, for whatever reason. um. Mm-hmm. And it hadn't been for quite some time. And so for us, we felt like there was a huge hole in the market because all the stuff that we thought was cool wasn't really getting talked about on the Tennis Channel. Tennis Magazine wasn't really what we remembered as kids when Tennis Magazine used to be owned by the New York Times. And it was a little bit more of a journalistic endeavor. And so we kind of looked at the state of tennis media and we thought, well, there's some things that we like and there's some things that we consume, but there's this huge hole right in the middle, which is... Nobody's trying to make tennis cool. Nobody's trying to connect it to to our modern conversation. And in a lot of ways, they've kind of let the sport be pigeonholed in this really uncool corporate elitist way that I don't feel like has any resemblance to the sport that I've always loved. Um, And so it really started with more of an ethos than a plan, which (laughs) is maybe good or maybe bad. I don't know. Um, But it started with a friendship with David, um, and I just came from the courts playing with him. Um, earlier this afternoon Um, you know and it was just this deep felt deeply felt idea that like there was a huge opportunity here and and we could together sort of do something but we didn't really know what that something was Um, and at the time digital media had sort of taken the air out of the room for any other type of publishing Mm. Um, so when we launched a print magazine people thought we were crazy because they were like didn't you guys read that print is dead (laughs) but we were kind of like we don't care because we actually are ahead of you because tyler brulee and monocle and kinfolk and lucky peach and all these really cool niche publications had already proven that the model worked um Mm -hmm. uh the rest of media was just behind per usual and so we kind of felt like okay well we're gonna do this and if we can get the right amount of people the right sort of group of people the really engaged people then it works, and it doesn't need to be the same sort of business model as a lot of other media around tennis. It can be this niche thing, but because it's high touch and means something to people, we think that it has a chance to succeed. So at the time, it was seen as very – I think people were sort of skeptical of what we are doing, and, you know, they still might be too. Not a lot of people – not everybody in the tennis space really understands what we're doing, Um, and that's fine. They don't have to, but what I'm really excited about is a lot of the new people – come to tennis come through us and Mm -hmm. that makes me feel better than anything else in the world that was the mission of racket all along and it continues to be which is how can we make this sport bigger more inclusive better and how can we get the rep that tennis has to be re sort of evaluated by the larger world of people and if the tennis fanatics who love tennis magazine who you know buy all the equipment on tennis warehouse and that's their thing and they don't need to read about the culture if that's where our fans end up that's great but they they were more interested in the larger group of people who haven't felt really welcomed and how we can make it sort of connect the dots between their world and ours that's
0: fantastic you've said racket magazine was your love letter to tennis and i thought that was such a great line
1: thank you
2: where did the um the the idea for the podcast come? Did that come at the same time as uh, as the original or as the as the magazine itself? Or
1: no, you know, I used to do this podcast. I guess I technically still do it. I was working at WNYC, um, New York Public Radio, here in New York, right when podcasts were sort of starting to become viable again. Mm. Um, this is sort of after like the serial. You could get an i you know your iPhone came. Preloaded with the podcast app and um at the time I was doing a podcast called the main draw with another college tennis player who happened to find himself at WNYC and we would often like run into each other in the cafeteria and start talking about tennis and we started recording ourselves and just doing it in a way that was really fun we had Courtney Nguyen on we had a few other people on it was great we do it once in a blue moon nowadays because he works at Gimlet and he's very 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 busy um as am I but we always really loved it and I love the idea that tennis podcasts in particular could be this sort of much more welcome forum and venue for the elevation of voices. I mean that's uh-huh. true whether it's subject the subject matter is tennis or not. Podcasts really are, at least in the moment, before it was blogs and before it was something else. But, you know, basically the openness of the system means that you get a variety of voices that some editor or some station director doesn't have to make a judgment call about whether something is good or whether it's quality, because the station directors and editors tend to look like the same types of people in every institution, in every newsroom across the land, and always have, um, at least in my experience, working in about five different newsrooms, right? So the promise of podcasting was really fun, and also we could just kind of riff and do something really fun and loose um, in a way that felt very sort of, again, additive to the tennis conversation, because you're just getting like John McEnroe not knowing people's names on you know, broadcasting or like a slice tutorial in tennis magazine. And you were like, there's gotta be something more than this. Like, come on. Um, And so the podcast sort of experience was always sort of part of our ethos in the sense that it was, I think again, more less formal and also more um, wide ranging and interested in culture. Um, But the, the bracket podcast really came about um, when I became friends with Renee, who I met through Andrea Pekovic because she was moving to my neighborhood. Um, and she and I were hitting one morning and she said, Hey, you know what we should do? We should do a pod. I could get all my friends to interview them. And I was like, okay, great. <laughs> it was pretty simple. I mean, she Renee's not a subtle person. She like doesn't really beat around the bush. And I was like, great. If you want to do that and call up your friends and have everybody come on the show and interview us and, and talk to us and get to their sort of personal moments and talk about stuff that is on the court but also off that's fantastic mm. so it really was not a hard decision or something that you know it was always sort of part of the plan strategically like I think we knew the magazine would be one thing and you know broadcast content one day television and film content you know all the stuff yeah. was sort of on the table because for us it's more about sensibility than it is about whatever format we're discussing um and it was just me being opportunistic right like okay cool great start calling up your friends. Like, you want to get Chris Everett and Billie Jean King? So, you know, <laughs> not, uh-huh. I'm not going to stop you. Um, yeah. But it was really meant to be a vehicle for Renee to sort of include her, Um. you know, essentially her Rolodex and the chance that she often interviews these amazing people, but only gets 90 seconds with them, right? Yeah. And that's, there's a lot more that she knows about because she's friends with all these people. And how can we then bring that to people in a way that, tries to sort of humanize them and make them, you know, kind of like what I was saying about Bob Woodward. They're people. They're just people. Some of them are great. Some of them are quirky. You know, they they run the gamut, but they're human. And I think that to to me is very on mission for racket, which is, you know, we're not here to deify the big three or one player in particular or another. That's so not interesting to me. What's interesting to me is this is a really amazing sport played by a real gallery of rogues you know and like <laughs> some of them are cool and some of them aren't and that's fine yeah. um but let's explore that you know
2: yeah and so
1: um, with the podcast we are lot, we can do that
2: yeah i think um uh, peter peter when we were when we were so we, did, we, we did a little bit of research about you before you you came on and uh, peter was saying that uh you you, you yeah you you found the the, the whole big three discussion a little bit a little bit boring or you were a little bit done with it is that is that right is, is yeah, that... I mean,
1: I've, Scott i've been done yeah i've been done with that conversation <laughs> i um i you know i recognize that for a lot of people that fanship that they have for one of those three players and i actually would include serena in this one of the three players plus serena um is meaningful to a lot of people you know truly at the end of the day if people connect to one player first and that's how they, that's like the pinnacle of their tennis experience is connecting with one player. You know, I don't want to take that away from them or call that stupid. However, I think what tennis should have been doing and needs to do and what we all as a community of creators can do is if it takes watching Serena or watching Roger Federer or watching Novak Djokovic to get you in the door, then how else are we keeping you there? And how else are we engaging you? And you know i think what is really an evolution that's underway i think partly because of us is that you know tennis was in this really corporate really reductive era from the 80s essentially to now where it became about stars and endorsements all the players stopped saying stuff that was interesting you didn't you stopped seeing pictures of bjorn borg getting coked up and going to studio 54 with grace jones on his arm <laughs> and everybody was like, falling all of themselves to be like corporate and media trained and polished and yeah. really what happened during that time is like very very few people made an astronomical amount of money between img and like nike and a few of the tournaments And Mm -hmm. everybody else kind of faded into the background. Like, now tournaments that are not a Grand Slam are considered warm-up tournaments, which is Mm. incredibly insulting to the Italian Open or the Canadian Open. Like, these are these countries' pinnacle tournament experience. Like, it used to be more meaningful to win the Rome Open, the Italian Open, than it used to be to win the Australian Open. So, like, for me, I would rather win the Italian Open. That place (laughs) is cool. That tournament's cool. Like, it's a way better, um, you know... It's it's a way better you know surface for me certainly, um, and so I think what I'm hoping we're seeing now is sort of a return to the idea that tennis is cool because of the variety, because mm-hmm. you go to a tournament and you're going to see you know Alize Cornet and whoever Sabalenka out on court seventeen, and then you look over here and it's Gaël Monfils versus Tizipas, and there's not a not a sort of drought of interesting things to look at in sight. And that to me is really cool. And I think Mm. um, what I'm interested in doing is really expanding people's worldview. Like you wouldn't leave a baseball game or an F1 rally or, you know, a a rugby match if your one guy wasn't playing, right? Like you'd be like, oh, I'm here for the experience. I'm here for the pitch. I'm here for the beer i'm here for the screaming whatever it is um and so tennis really did itself a disservice by focusing on like oh is this the tournament where roger federer is going to win yet another and it's like who cares i don't know i've seen Mm -hmm. that so many times i don't care does he even care like we've made painted this picture like grand slam count matters and you know that um you know it's all this race to you know excellence and imperviousness i'd rather see somebody random win something because it's exciting because i haven't seen their victory celebration especially <laughs> on the men's side um and lastly now that you've got me talking about this even though i didn't want to talk about the big three but scott you've succeeded <laughs> in <Sorry>. the, <laughs> the last thing i'll say about this and i really can't say about it enough the the tennis twitter um internecine warfare between the stands is just uh-huh. so so unbelievably lame if you think <laughs> any of the big three or serena cares about any of this and you're 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 somehow in communication with this godlike figure in your life then I urge you to I don't know seek help because for me it's like what are you in it for like if you want to just deify somebody I don't know go like be be into like uh, pop stars or something. you know like it's just not tennis is not that it's not for you if that's the way that you you know be a fan don't be a stan you know that's, That's fair. it's it's sort of it's 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 appalling to me because it makes me question whether they actually like the sport or they're yeah. just like really into this one, you know, this one player. Yeah. Um, so I would encourage them to, you know, to to expand their portfolio.
2: That's fair. That's fair. I'm, I'm I'm very aware of you saying that and uh, we're we're currently recording an episode of Andy Murray musings, but <laughs> I, mean, I, do, I mean everybody I
1: I will say this. I like Andy Murray so much and almost none none of it has to do with his tennis.
2: That's fair. Yeah. That's reasonable. Yeah. That's reasonable. He's off court chat. That's that's totally fair. Yeah, I mean
1: he's a stand-up human being. He's yeah. he's there for women. He's there for the inclusivity of tennis. He's he's a rational, thoughtful fearless person personally i i admire that a lot and he's also grown up a lot right like he was yeah. playing video games and and being kind of a brat and then turned into like this sort of elder statement statement of the game you know and sadly we're not talking about the big four anymore are we it's like yeah the big yep. G. so yeah. look andy murray like there's nothing i like least less than watching and i apologize on a andy murray podcast <laughs> to slander in any way andy murray totally fair. um you know, watching like a Novak Djokovic, Andy Murray backhand <coughs> rallies just like makes me want to walk into the sun. However, <laughs> I do respect the hell out of the man and root for him in probably any scenario just because of how compelling a human being he seems to be. And I admire the hell out of the fact that he decided that being just good enough. To hang with three of the most talented human beings to probably hold the racket in the men's side in, yeah. in and still snuck in some grand slams and won, you know, not one but two titles on his home turf is yeah. mm-hmm. un- unbelievably compelling. Like that's grit beyond anything I can imagine because he didn't have it w- didn't come from talent. It it came from grit. Yeah. right. Yeah, and enough. I think, and I think, yeah. But but for me, everything about Andy Murray is, is about how off the court he's such a great uh, human being. Seemingly, so, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah.
2: Uh, we'll, we 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 th- we were going to chat about Andy towards the end, but we uh, we we did that sneak that in a bit earlier. But um, I feel
1: like yeah, we got to get it off the, <laughs> why off not? the table. Why yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, going back to the whole uh, yeah the 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 media side of things. Obviously, you've kind of touched a little bit on. Um, uh, on on things that you'd rather not, or th- things that kind of like you'd rather not see as much of in like the tennis media, you know, coverage of the big, uh, the big three particularly, and yeah, like some kind of, uh, media reporters, journalists who, who didn't who don't quite know what they're talking about, or you know they don't know the names of certain players. Um, so what would you like? Is, is there any like kind of key areas that you would like to see highlighted further in in, in tennis media that aren't currently? Like yeah, her. I
1: mean I mean I think they're I'm mean, gonna sort of interpret your question to suit my own ends. That's so fair. forgive me for no, that. Oh no no totally um, fine. Yeah. I I know less other than as a consumer about the mechanisms of broadcasting um and commentary that's happening during a live tennis broadcast. So I'm gonna set that aside because I think um that's less of a problem area, although there's lots of areas in which I think they could improve camera angle gloviating during points certainly the 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 personnel who especially in the states we get is just so tired and so white and so old um that there's a lot of places that i i think that could be improved but i really Mm. know print journalism digital journalism newsrooms like the back of my hand and nothing is more upsetting than going into one of these grand slam media centers and seeing the ossified backward lily white octogenarian press corps that doesn't even leave their desks yeah. um to cover matches and so you think you've flown all over the world to be here you're uh-huh. taking the per diem of the all england club or mm. the french Fe- tennis federation and you're watching satellite feeds of matches and doing match recaps which if anybody has noticed between apps twitter and google scores so are completely yeah. irrelevant yeah. um And you're not using this opportunity to get out into the crowd, courtside, to immerse yourself in what being here means, which is the unbelievable atmosphere or sense of ominousness or pressure or whatever it is. Um, You know, a few of them do, but very, very few. And I look at an organization like the International Tennis Writers Association, which is sort of like, but when you apply for credentials for a lot of these tournaments, they ask you to tick a box to make sure that you're a member of that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And uh, and that that's that in and of itself is the problem because yeah. all of these old men—they're mostly men—they're mostly old—are this body of of journalists, and and I can't for the life of me figure out what they're doing and what the coverage is eliciting, and then you see transcripts and you see um press conferences where people are asking unbelievably uninformed or insane or sexist or condescending questions of these athletes like when you have a Uh Conta who's like otherwise like pretty calm like chewing out a reporter in the press score. like that's that the amount of provocation that she got To get to that point is just nuts like I get why Venus Williams skips press right like that's it makes sense she can take the fine no problem so so the first thing I I, you know and I think for me the the encapsulation of it I finally managed to get the USTA to give David and I credentials which is insane that it took so long it was so hard um and I go out this is like maybe two or three years ago this is when Naomi Osaka won it the first time and i go to court 17 i'm watching her paste uh alexandra sasnovich oh no oh and i think it was the grand uh the court 17 And in the stands, I see three of my friends, two people I know, two of whom have contributed to Racket. One is Gary Nathan, who at the time was working for Deadspin. One is E. Alex Young, who works still and did then for Vulture, New York Magazine's pop culture blog and site. He does a lot of sort of celebrity features. And Chloe Cooper Jones, who writes for us, but also among other places, GQ, and she's great. All three of these are people of color. All three of these are my contemporaries, if not younger than me. All three of these are the some of the coolest most thoughtful most um impressive minds when it comes to culture and sport um and i was excited to see them and i said why aren't you guys i haven't seen you in the press room like what's what's up and they were like we couldn't get credentials and i thought to myself like holy shit there's an opportunity cost to this like it's yeah. not just, is this bad, but we're not doing a good enough job like encouraging people in the door and maybe people don't know that they can apply for credentials or maybe there's some gatekeeping that we need to address. It's, they didn't, they got rejected for credentials for a tournament in their hometown from three between them of the most important cultural and and in the case of Deadspin, you know, sports sites at at that time. And it was sort of baffling mm-hmm. to me and that to me was an indication that my own gut was right and the tennis coverage that we get out of these rooms is mostly dismal. And what I would do tomorrow, if I could, is re- remove every single tennis journalist, at least in the print and sort of press room, again, setting aside the commentators and the broadcast, because that's a little bit out of my area of expertise. And I would make everybody reapply and start over. Mm-hmm. And the the and if you're not there to be there and to make use of being there, which is to get one-on-ones with players, ask questions in the interview room, be out and about in the tournament, then you don't get to go. You can watch it remotely and file whatever you want from wherever you are. But for yeah. me, it's such an core problem. And if you look at the way tennis has been sort of relegated, especially in print media, you know, it's A24. It's way back in the back of the newspaper. It's it's making fewer and, f- and fewer sort of appearances in everybody's daily life where something dumb like golf is everywhere. So it's just sort of like, oh, well, this is an easy fix, right? Yeah. So that to me is something that I feel really passionately about. And I wish um, you know, I wish we were, we were addressing and maybe we will now that, you know, everybody's kind of had to reevaluate who needs to be on site because of, you know, coronavirus protocols. So I'm optimistic, but it was such a cl- clear encapsulation of what's wrong, seeing the news, seeing that room and seeing those rooms in every single slam or tournament I've been to, and then looking at who's, who's on the court and who's reporting who couldn't get into those rooms and where, where can we flip the switch? Yeah. Yeah
2: do you think like just expand on that like do do you think that like a lot of that kind of uh the the issue in in this is like because i I feel like you know you you briefly touched on uh, how, how easy it is to you know go on twitter go on like social media and like find out these like quick answers, if you're just looking for the scores for tennis matches, you know, is is like the rise of like social media, does that kind of play into that and how easy it is to for these journalists to just turn up and just type on their phone a little bit, like a few match scores and stuff like that, and then just get it out there and get get their jobs done that I, way?
1: I don't know. I mean, I think if I thought the press corps were capable of using the internet, I would be more optimistic. <laughs> I really am not exaggerating. Like, this is... this is the dustiest room these are the dustiest rooms i've ever seen it's baffling Uh Uh it's baffling to me um what even the people who are giving credentials are doing you know um and and so so what i hope happens is like i think the rise of apps i wish there were more score apps because the ones we we have now after the atp wta app disappeared um are not great yeah um espn's isn't really great tennis channel i don't think has a you know you can watch tv on the app but you can't watch you can't do scores on the app i don't think um the wta and atp sites leave a lot to be desired so like there's an opportunity here for more um but i think you know just as in many other sports what really and this is sort of why i didn't understand the skepticism or at times the pushback towards us when we started the magazine and started kind of making some noise is because if you come from any other space it's if it's the culture space if it's the politics space if it's another sport, those sports and those subject areas enjoy so much variety and variance in voices, types of coverage, types of conversations. You can be into basketball, but not even be into the sport of basketball. You can be into the basketball shoes. You can be in basketball fashion. You can be in basketball music and culture and history and um, politics. And for me, what is so clearly missing with tennis is just the preponderance of these types of things, which is, again, why I think podcasts are so fun because there are an increasing variety of people and voices and takes, right? Like nobody listening to The Body Serve is going to get exactly the same conversation that you guys are having, which is going to be different than, you know, Ben and Courtney are having on No No Challenges Remaining. Those are Uh maybe some people listen to all three of those things, but that's, but they're serving different conversations and different needs. Mm. and. Each of them have their own opportunity to reach out and get new fans and bring new eyes and new you know blood into the sport. And so for me, everything with with tennis has been so resistant to opening the door to 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 growing the tent, to making the door feel open and welcoming. Um, and I want to really change that. Like you know, whenever I talk about this, I get a ton of pushback from other journalists um, who are like, "This is you're shitting on us and our jobs are so hard and you know how dare you?" And it's like. If if you weren't the problem, then you wouldn't be offended. You'd be applauding what I'm saying. And mm-hmm. since you are the problem, you are threatened by this and you should be, yeah. because you've had free reign because this sport has neither been big enough to justify scrutiny and mm-hmm. variety, but it also hasn't sort of been new enough for people to kind of be like, Hey, maybe some of this stuff is broken. We should fix it, right? Yeah. And so for me, um, you know, this is a huge area for me because I know what it should look like. And there's not that many difficult choices and and plans to put into effect to make it better. And I like to think that we're part of that. Um, and I hope if nothing else, we've shown that, you know, creating something new in the space of tennis um, is possible. It can be popular, it can be influential, and other people should do it too. Whether that's another magazine or a video series, or literally whatever it is. Um, you know, I don't want to close the door behind us because I feel like that's, you know, we're just going to end up with the same problem where a few people control giant shares of the pie as opposed yeah. to a really big pie.
2: That's a good analogy. I like that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I um, invented
1: that analogy, Scott.
2: I'm the first person to talk about that. So cool. You're welcome. Um. Uh, yeah. Like, so like, we're on murray musings we jump back and forth forward with our kind of uh, questions here there's kind of no sure. linear kind of <laughs> like follow through here so kind of going to go a little bit back to your your own story like as um, as a woman in the industry uh, you, you've spoken a little bit about um you know uh, the, the need to kind of diversify like try and hear from as many different voices as possible um what kind of like did did you yourself like face setbacks um that that you felt was because of your gender at all like as you as you made your way to the position that you're that you're in now and if so like what kind of like how 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 would you go about changing then?
1: oh man think? i mean i think i would imprison all the men and only let like a few of the good ones out that's honestly fair. okay
2: that's fair that's fair that's i mean i right.
1: think that's you know You guys don't deserve better, but I'm, I'll be reasonable, you know, with who I let out. Um, no, I think I, I, there are so many, um, and I, I sort of am asked about this on occasion or I'm asked about being gay just because I think, you know, typically the sports world is very straight, very white and very male. I'm Uh one of those things. Obviously I'm white, uh, but I'm not straight and I'm not a male. And so all I can do is sort of compare those two ways that I'm a little bit different. And frankly, okay. being gay has been such an advantage for me. Um, and it made me, it has made me understand how much of a disadvantage being a woman is. And that's not just true in tennis or media. It's true in life, sadly. Um, you know, and again, I'm not, you know, trying to sort of compete on the oppression Olympics and who has the most <laughs> obstacles to face. Cause you know, God knows it's not easy being a human being alive and, in. in in our time I, I do want to say though that um you know being a gay woman has allowed me to understand the way that men treat other men because sometimes mm-hmm. that's how they relate to me because they don't see me as I'm like some sort of weird other and it has made me also much more outspoken and much more aggressive than a typical sort of straight woman would be expected to be and maybe not always punished for it Um, And so I know I'm sort of speaking in generalities. There's not like one encapsulating, you know, anecdote. And then Bob Woodward spit in my face and I told him to, you know, uh, you know, nothing, nothing that I can crystallize other than saying, you know, day in and day out, not having your voice heard, not being taken seriously, having a male co-founder and having him, him be in the room not to talk, but to sort of give weight to the words that I'm saying and having them look at him and then he'll point to me. You know this is a pretty commonplace experience for most women i i just am not somebody who super super cares uh to hear the word no or to you know allow other people sort of diminished expectations for me um you know make me feel in any way limited um but i do think <laughs> i do think that um you know it would be easy to be like oh if i were a man you know, when we started Racket or, you know, the, the attention or the way we would be taken seriously or any any of this uh, might be different. And it certainly would have been. That said, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, interested in, you know, creating, t- you know, any sort of dynamics that allow me to sort of feel victimized by this. I'm, if anything, you know, allowing this to sort of galvanize me. I think, frankly, being a really competitive tennis player has made me very comfortable with the idea that I'm... I'm 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 not out there alone in the in the literal sense because David is by my side and we've been friends longer than we've been business partners and if anything have become better friends. Um, but I think you know I'm not I'm comfortable with the idea that we could be outsiders. People can't don't have to understand what we're doing. Um, but at the end of the day, are the quality of what we're doing in the world with racket and the quality of you know how I treat people and our interactions with others and, and how we're building and and working with our team sort of with integrity kind of is the only thing that I can leave behind. And so I feel like that to me, um, you know, I'm not trying to replicate problematic power structures within my own organization or, or deal with, you know, like, I, I don't want to, I'm not interested in being like, oh, I'm like a... I'm not a girly girl. I'm like a girl with only <laughs> men friends or something. It's like, okay, well, yeah. that means you're a nightmare, you know? So yeah. I'm not sure if that exactly answers your question. But no,
2: no, yeah. no, no. But like, that's like, th- that's the kind of insight that like is kind of invaluable, I think. So thanks for, thanks for, uh, for giving, for giving that, that, that kind yeah. of insight there. Um, one thing I, one, one other thing I did, I was curious about is, um, what kind of in 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 your opinion is the uh is is a story in in racket that you that that you're most proud of like that that you've been able to kind of amplify because there's been uh yeah there's been a, a a lot of a lot of a lot of you know um kind of serious stories that the racket has covered in the past so I was just intrigued as to your your own kind of thoughts on mm. on what you're kind of most proud of.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think for me uh two examples really stand out um largely because i adore both of the pieces themselves but also because i think they kind of illustrate what we're trying to do um and the backstory to them is both really i I think at least interesting to me um one of which is you know obviously getting andrea pekovich to write for us contribute to us on a regular basis do reporting and really stretch herself in terms of the kind of writer and thinker she is Um, I'm tremendously proud of that. And I think, uh, you know, she wrote a book this year in German after having, you know, written, um, a lot for us. And I think those two things, you know, I, well, I know because we've talked about it, like those, those two things are not unrelated. Um, Hmm. you know, I think her ability to put something into words in a way that's meaningful for her life and do essentially auto fiction, um, is, is related to the fact that we got her writing and really, and really thinking. And the reason I'm proud of it is because as a reader, Um, and especially for people who are casual tennis fans, understanding the game through the lens of somebody like her is so amazing because she stands up as a writer, shoulder to shoulder with any professional writers, or she is a professional writer because we pay her and she's published. But, um, you know, especially at the beginning when it wasn't as, uh, established of a dynamic, you know, I... I was totally comfortable publishing her next to Taffy Brutus or Ackner or Sasha Fer Jones or Thessaly the Force or any of these big names that we get to write for us um, because she's good she's just that good you don't need to know who she is to read her prose and understand it you know if I were to get something from another athlete or you know what I read sometimes on on um, I forget what the Australian site is called, but there's the one here is uh the players tribune and it's oh, like so obviously an athlete's sort of agent has ghostwritten this with them and you know, there's not uh-huh. that much insight usually into what they're what they're doing. And I think she offers an insanely um compelling insight and interesting insight into what it's like to be both really smart and able to articulate your experience, but also having these experiences and being at this elite level. Cause usually those two things are in conflict. So that's one of them. And the second one, um, there's a writer that I really adore and was happy we could publish, um, in the third issue of the magazine called Sarah Nicole Prickett. And the reason I come back to Sarah's piece, she wrote the cover story about Maria Sharapova when Maria was coming back from her Meldonium, um, suspension in what turned out to be a pretty short lived, uh, yeah. uh, return. Cause I think she only really had a, a couple months on the to... tour less, yeah, I think like, less than a year. Probably, yeah. Um, and what I loved about Sarah Nicole's writing is that she, we of course didn't get Maria. We knew we probably wouldn't. And frankly we were a little relieved because Maria is, I think a very interesting person and actually really smart and somewhat cool actually. Um, mm-hmm. but, has been media trained to within an inch of her life and wouldn't give an interesting quote to Sarah Nicole. And so not including her gave Sarah essentially the, the chance to imagine what her interior is like. Yeah. And I think for somebody like Maria who came to this country with very, very little was essentially providing for her family and told she needed to provide for her family and dealt with that lot in life, with steely determination, but also sort of a almost blank canvas for advertisers to work with, was such a zeitgeisty thing. It was such a moment. Like earlier when I was talking about the Big Three and Serena and how that that sort of corporate time in tennis really made the sort of top-line metrics of what endorsements and television coverage and sponsorship stuff could look like but at the same time, it bled the other parts of the sport dry. The variety, the voices, the mm. sort of traveling circus nature of all these different tournaments and all these different personalities. And I think, when I think of Maria Sharapova, I think of her as the height of that. Because she was winning on court, don't get me wrong. She was, mm-hmm. she was, you know, she, she racked up every, she won on every single surface. She won a, She's won at least one Grand Slam um, of, of every one they offer. On the other hand, she was in every advertisement... Her 16th birthday was sponsored by Motorola. She was Easy. a yep. like she has shilled before she even probably formed too much of a personality. Yeah. And so just the idea of being trapped in that um in that vessel, you know, and when she when she launched her candy brand, Sugar Pova, I will never forget an interview I think she did on the tennis channel where she was asked like about it. And she said, Well, I've always wanted to have a brand. and you're like what kind of inhuman answer is that like i've always loved candy i've always wanted to like willy wonka sugar you know i i i'm always off sneaking you know bags of candy in the under my covers like no no attachment to the product it was or like i love design and the idea of yeah you know or like i love joy or and something that yeah. was like sort of <laughs> indicative of why you would do this like i always wanted to have my own brand and you kind of got the sense that like somebody could have come to her and been like hey do you want to endorse this like color of paint or do you want to <laughs> like we have some really like interesting tacos for you to endorse or here's some candy like she was kind of like whatever like yeah and and that's not to slight her and i Man. think to her credit she's gotten a lot more interesting since retiring like her interior design stuff and Fantastic. i know her, her yeah. involvement in the art she's involved in the art space because i know her fiance is particularly interested in that and they they share that in common and you know and she's an investor in a lot of companies in a way that actually is especially compared to serena like actually successful um. No. No shade to like Serena Ventures, but that's a total joke. So, so I don't mean to slight her, and and Sarah's piece was sort of unflinching in how it painted her, who Maria could be. Yeah. But uh-huh. more than anything else, it was yep. an attempt to be empathetic, which is like here's this person. She's never had a chance to become a person. She's yeah. a blank canvas for advertising what does that mean and what must that look like and so getting a writer like Sarah who does uh, amazingly high level stuff she used to run this thing called adult magazine to do something on a tennis world favorite in such a different way you would never have seen that piece anywhere else by her with that imagery with that design and that to me is really what you know like I get pitched all the time and that's really nice because at the beginning we had to like beg people to write it for us because they didn't know what we were doing and didn't, didn't understand it. But now I get pitched all the time and it's like, hey, I have a story for you. It's about the big three or like, let's go back and look <laughs> about like tennis at the White House. And it's like, that's, I could read that anywhere. I could read that in tennis magazine. I could read that in your like local, you know, Arizona Republic Sunday pullout section. You know, if you're going to write for us, we'll pay you to do something really weird. So take advantage, you know, get esoteric, get highfalutin really go for something big because we want that to add to people's idea of what sports journalism could even be, you know, I yeah. don't want to, f- don't want a profile of, you know, a person that you talk to in a media room for five minutes, you know, I want something weird. That's an imagined conversation with Maria Sherpo, the 16 year old self, which is essentially what we got. So those two pieces I think for me really stay with me because they illustrate two of these very core ideas about how we can, make tennis mean more than how it's been presented uh thus far
2: that's so so interesting because like uh you know just even from a kind of personal standpoint someone who's you know tried to um i, I spoke to peter a little bit before before we um uh, before we had you on uh about you know the amount of times i you know like try to like pitch ideas places to try and get things published and just like I feel like I haven't really thought outside the box in that way, as you say, like kind of uh, come come at something from like a totally original kind of angle. So I think that's a really kind of that's a that's a valuable kind of insight into into what um into what like editors and and, and publishers are kind of looking for. So I think I'm gonna go. Away I mean, and I, think to about be that. clear, I don't
1: know that everybody wants. <laughs> no, 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 to be, you for, you know, sure, this. for sure, for sure, for sure. But like, you know, yeah,
2: it's a, yeah. I
1: think um when I think about writing uh, which I've started to do a little bit more. I, they're letting me do a weekly column at Eurosport which you yep. to see if their gamble with me, but I don't know. Um, but I was happy <laughs> to do it. Like that's a little bit more straightforward because obviously it's connected to like a more sort of the cadence of weekly means it's, you know, connected to the tennis world in a little bit more of a granular way. Um, but even that, it's like you hired me to be myself. And so you're yeah. going to get me and it's going to be the style of writing that I enjoy writing. And it's going to be, you know, it's going to be sort of very, I don't want to say aggressive, but certainly like very, um, you know, assertive ideas. And, and, and I don't, you know, I, I personally when I'm editing or looking for, for work that really speaks to me. Um, and I know David is definitely this way cause he edits the magazine. Um, and I know exactly what he's going to like and not like that comes in our way. I, I think it's so easy to be same. Um, But in reality, being yourself on the page um, is really the biggest asset you have. And the best writers and the best, most compelling thinkers are people who invite us into their world and kind of are hard to turn away from as opposed to, you know, I don't want your standard 800 word. (laughs) <laughs> you know, th- like I, Fetter's th- best. No, do you even want to write that? You know, like that's yeah. not even going to be that exciting for anybody. Um, yeah. so I think for me, like, uh, you know, people really feeling keen to get their own distillation, um, into the world is, is probably at least the most fun for me as a reader. I don't know if it's going to lead to the most successful freelance career, but you know,
2: that's uh, a, that, that's really good insight. Actually. I think, I think we have a few kind of listeners who, who, who are kind of, uh, you know fledgling writers fledgling podcasters and kind of looking for uh looking for careers in tennis so um i think that that's some really valuable insight on the on the subject of you know the podcast again like the podcasting side of things um do you have any advice for us as to how to grow our grow our audience <laughs> a little bit to kind of uh, bring in some listeners uh, yes get know.
1: andy murray on the show
2: is that is uh, that the best I, way is that just
1: <laughs> i mean in your case <laughs> that yes
2: be the best
0: yeah kind of i think you part.
1: need to create the murray musings annual andy murray award and just give him a, an award every year for something and then get him to be on the podcast you're in uh-huh. Scotland. I mean, how hard can it be? Go up to, the, what is it, the... where? What's that hotel that he and uh, his family... Cromlix. Yeah, yeah. I, could
2: just turn, I could just turn up, couldn't I?
0: I could just...
1: Yeah, give him <laughs> yeah. a fancy plaque. Get him, you know, a say, so I want to give you this award. Yeah, you know. Give, yeah. I He's think with a plaque.
0: infamous for uh, breaking uh, trophies, so hopefully he <laughs> won't break ours. But yeah, that <laughs> actually sounds like a good idea.
1: Yeah, at, what do you mean actually? Of course, it's a brilliant idea <laughs> for free.
2: We're going to know that Diane. We're going to know that day. You better.
1: Yeah, that's the idea. That I, this is just off the top of my head. Usually, I charge people a lot of money for these, br- these brilliant ideas.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so, going back to um, your podcast and your episodes, I've loved – All of them, of course, Um, especially the ones highlighting mostly the women's voices you've had from Mm. Kirsten Gillibrand to Uzo Aduba. um, And of course, the most recent one with Venus Williams. Um, She was the tennis player that got me into tennis. Um, And this is the most I feel that she's opened up. Was there any question that you wanted to ask her that wasn't uh, answered?
1: I mean, I... I knew getting anything out of Venus was going to be a triumph because she is uh-huh. such a closed book. And I don't even think, and I was asking Renee this, I was like, is she just insanely private or she just doesn't like sort of dwell? And she was kind of like a little bit of both, but she really yeah. just moves forward. Like she's not a, she's obviously an incredibly thoughtful person. Like the reason I used my first year column to talk about her fight for pay equality is because people kind of slept on that. And then she yep. did it at, she did it, won it. And then won one of the great, greatest grand slam finals matches the next day. Against Lindsay Davenport at Wimbledon in 2005. She's amazing. Um, And so she's really determined and thoughtful and like plans when she wants to be. But other times she's just sort of like, I got to let it go. I got to keep moving forward. And so she's just such an interesting character because she's so, um, she's quite quirky actually. And she's a, she's a real, you know, so basically I was just kind of like get any, like I had questions for her about the privilege tax and some of the work she was doing with gender stuff. And, Uh you know. And Renee got to some of that, but I think more than anything else, if you're in her headspace, you just kinda let her talk and and go. So I found the interview the same as you did. Like the only thing I was really frustrated about is, you know, again, given that some of these folks, you're never gonna get them in the studio and that's just because of the kind of caliber of sort of person they are, and it's tough uh to, to you know, draw them into a New York studio and also studios have been closed in, for the past year. But what, the only thing I was sort of kicking myself is I wish Renee had leaned in when she was leaning backwards to get the microphone into her face because it was so hard to edit how quiet she was, which I yeah. think, again, is such an illustration of like, you know, she's really engaged when she wants to be. She's really present. She's really funny. She's really um, quick. But she also kind of leans back and says like, eh, you know, it is what it is. And And those moments were as instructive to me about who she is um and again i think the real point of that is not to be like hey look we got someone famous on our podcast you know everybody retweet it but rather like the whole point of this is to get into the minds and the psyches and the lived experiences of some of the greatest people who've yep. ever played tennis um and i think you know mm-hmm you try to, and then sometimes, you know, the, per, the subject has to cooperate. But I think in, in that case, she was just so comfortable with Renee that we heard so much about her inner life that I was really obviously very, very happy. And, and I learned so many things. So yeah, it was yeah. less about like, what kind of question. And I think for me, you know, um, you know, the question, the question doesn't matter if the person isn't in a place to receive it or to, to process it you know yeah. and so you can spend a ton of time prepping and coming up with the greatest question ever but if the if the subject isn't relaxed and comfortable and if they feel like they're being like sort of led too much or if it doesn't come up sort of in an organic way you're going to get a very different answer and you'll probably get sort of emotionally shut down from them and so i think with podcasting in particular the key thing is to take advantage of the fact that the medium is relaxed And to get your guests to be relaxed because radio is you're hitting a clock, you're out, you have commercial breaks, you know, you're coming in on five after the weather, you know, I used to work in radio. It's not it's, you know, even the most relaxed conversations still have a sort of frenetic uh, sort of format to them. Whereas, uh-huh. yeah. whereas with podcasting, the whole point is to get a, you know, you can edit it. So get them to a place where they're actually comfortable and they're actually going to sort of be revealing, and they can use that. You can sort of use that jocular energy to get something out of, um, someone in a way that you know hopefully makes them feel like it was just a cathartic experience too. So I definitely heard that in the tape, um, mm-hmm. and I think people really responded too. to it when they when they when they heard it, um. Which makes me really happy. Like, I think it's probably the best episode we've ever done, largely because of how open Venus was and because of how Renee's proximity to her, um, although not literally in the moment with the microphone, but proximity to her in terms of, you know, their relationships and their history together um, really lent itself to that.
0: Yeah. Renee can bring out a lot from a lot of the guests, and that's Mm -hmm. been uh, just amazing to hear. Um, I would like to move on to um, college tennis players. Um, and there's been a few tennis players that have emerged rather quickly on the tennis scene. Um, are there any pros right now that came out of college um, the general tennis community oh, yeah, um, t- aren't paying attention to? Or do you know of any uh, college tennis players that uh, we probably need to look at?
1: Oh, man, that's, that's interesting. I get to be a voter on the NCAA. Uh-huh. Uh, week after week, which is amazing because it keeps me kind of connected to that world. Yep. Um, and so my knowledge should be better than it is. But I think um, watching Jenny Brady turn into a mm-hmm. very good college player, which usually turns into a pretty mediocre professional player, um, is has been really, really amazing to watch. So I'm not going to add any new names to your list, but I think between Jenny Brady and Daniel Collins, like the idea that we've had these two very, very different... Um, Storylines and Danielle sort of famously had a little bit of a fraught experience um, uh-huh. at, I think, where did she start? Florida, and then ended up in Virginia. Um, you know, and Jenny Brady, obviously, like sort of with Stella Sampras behind her, got to you know a really great place in in uh, singles and doubles at. at um, UCLA, but really took the next leap by getting a coach in Germany, getting out of the American system and getting like a huge rededication to the mat. I think what's, what's easy about college tennis is like, I don't think it's easy. I mean, I can tell you firsthand that it's not easy. Um, but I think especially for women, um, the, if you're, if you're a head and shoulders better player than your competition, it's really, really hard not to coast. And I know that that sounds um, sort of condescending and certainly it's not a it's not a height that I ever achieved. On the other hand, you know, if you look at like a Nicole Gibbs or a lot of the girls who came out of Stanford, um, uh-huh. you know, they were just so dominant and they were so good that um, and I look at the, the records week in and week out right now, it's North Carolina that I think has an 18 and 0 record um, on the women's side. And it's just they're murdering everybody. It's nuts. On the (laughs) other hand, whoever comes out of that and wins NCAAs is going to have to reorient themselves to losing every week um, on the tour, right? And I think that that transition cannot be overstated in terms of difficulty. Like, Nicole Gibbs went from being the greatest player of a generation in college tennis to a struggling pro, and eventually she retired. She was great. I loved watching her. I loved reading her. Yeah, um, but I love her. she wasn't really viable as a professional athlete. Um, not really. And that's not anything to do with her work ethic or anything to do with her athleticism, but, you know, just the realities of, like... You're up against a bunch of, like, Lithuanian girls who are seven feet tall and who have, <laughs> like, been deprived of food every day and they're going to win or kill you, right? Uh-huh. And so yeah. I think there's a big mindset shift. And I think looking at Jenny Brady, who threw a basically, like, a storyline shift where she was like, no, the American system is, like, kind of babying me too much. I need to go to Germany and get yelled at okay. a bunch and, like, just really uh-huh. get tough. Or Danielle Collins, who came in basically through adversity and was like, I'm going to make every match out here into a war. Like those are the two yeah. who've succeeded and I don't think it's an accident.
0: Um, I would like to revisit, um, what you were just saying about your college tennis career. Sure. Um, and, uh, I love this story that you actually had on, um, another podcast, um, that, uh, you had a, your last match was at a m Can you it tell was, that story? Yeah.
1: Sure. Yeah. It was a really fraught, um, It was a really fraught uh, appearance at the Big 12 Conference Championships, as they all were, because the University of Missouri Lady Tigers never, in my four years of being there, made it out of the first round. So you kind of felt like you were walking into a buzzsaw just because you knew, um, you know, you were probably going to get a seed um, and it was going to be ugly. And, you know, I'm not, I'm, I, I'm not really a pessimist. I'm not somebody who doesn't like try to, you know, seize the moment. And I myself had actually a decent record just cause I kind of played all over the lineup, uh-huh. um, throughout my four years at, at school there. But, um, I was so over it by my last year. I just, um, I, the coach we had was terrible. He didn't actually really know much about coaching tennis. He would, there was a sort of rotating cast of people who would come in for a year and then bounce, um, Who were really good and really great um and some of them turned into really good friends but very few really good players stayed because um the coach was so terrible and it was sort of a miserable experience um on the other hand i the reason i had gone there is to study journalism so for me quitting the school would have been pretty much a non-starter i would have just quit the team and tried to afford tuition by myself um and it it was something i thought about pretty much every year just because it was sort of a miserable experience um Which is a real bummer because I was so excited about playing college tennis and having this individual sport go um, into a team environment. And all of a sudden I'd have teammates who were rooting for me and we'd all be on it together and, you know, I could root for them. And, you know, Uh, and it was a big letdown because of how um, sort of combative our vibe was. And so basically by the end of the last year, I had contemplated quitting every year. I decided I didn't, A, want to quit, or B, pay for school. And so I would just try my best and try to find the moments of joy in playing and everything else that went around it, um, you know, I would try to sort of shut out. And, you know, the the athletic department at the time was, they would always tell you, like, oh, you know, like, we're here, you're student athletes, which means you're students first. But that's super not true. And if you're in a major that's hard, like journalism was... You know, there was really no understanding why I had to like stay and do work for the newspaper for a summer or anything like that. So I had a really sort of contentious experience, um, and I basically was by the last match of the last day of my tennis career, which I kind of knew it would be because we were, I think, playing. I forget who we were playing, but we were playing a better team than us. Um, and I was like, you know what? I'm not going to lose. I'm going to win, or I'm going to die trying. And uh-huh. I'm I am so over this, and I cannot wait to just have every single point be um, you know, my own, basically. And I sort of could see the light at the end of the tunnel after these very four young, long years. Um, and I I think I split sets, and I was in the third set when my team ended up losing, so they pull you off the court um, when you're done. And I just took off all of my equipment. Um, I left my rackets, I took off my shoes, I took on my wristbands, uh, I think I might have taken off my shirt. I just walked off barefoot, wow. and I was like, I'm done. I'm out. (laughs) I just let them. I don't know what they did with the brackets. They could have given them to somebody else or put them in the recycling bin. But I was kind of like, this is. I'm so over this, uh, and Uh I need to sort of shed all of my. um, uh, This is this is a. But I was also happy that I didn't lose. Right, like I was Uh happy I was in it and I was competing and I kind of went out, if not on my own terms, and at least in sort of a neutral place. Um, Yeah, and I didn't play for eight years.
0: Oh, wow. It was that long of a gap in between? Wow. Um, I'd like to quickly talk about my first competitive match. (laughs) Um, And so it was against a guy wearing an A&M shirt. So when I heard (laughs) your story, I was like, oh, wow. Um, So in Texas, a lot of us don't have love for A&M. And when I saw him earlier, when we were just looking at all the draws and everything, I was like, honestly, just please, just not him. Just not him. (laughs) And of course it was him. And so I was like, okay this is going to be awful. Um, And so it wasn't that competitive, but I mean, it was I believe six two, six three, or something. It's respectful. Um, and so the only redeeming thing about the match at the end, he was like, "You moved me around the court, and it was a good match." And I was oh, like, well, that's "Sounds what like I... he was kind
1: of nice, actually." Yeah,
0: yeah, and yeah. that's why I definitely aim to do. And my variety and um some other stuff is good, but I don't have power, don't have the serve, not that tall. So I mean, when that story just uh you told. I was like, that's definitely something that I wanted to mention real quick.
1: I mean if it so, makes yeah. this worse or better for you, I don't know. But after that we went out to like Jason's deli and I think I must have had like eight tacos and a baked potato, you know, like <laughs> Oh wow. I was just like, ah <laughs> Or maybe it was Taco Cabana. It was some. It was an A and M sort of like institution. We used to go there all the time. <laughs> um, I don't miss it. I haven't been back to College Station, Texas, home of the George H. W. Bush Presidential yeah. Library. Yeah, fair enough. not a lot. Not a lot that. of there stuff for me there. No. In College Station, Neither. but you know. Maybe so one day.
2: so interesting here in like this discussion about like college tennis, and I know it's like such a big thing. Like there's videos on YouTube, all of it. There's like things like that. It's like such a big thing over. And let's say it, like, here it's just kind of such like a secondary like thing. Like
1: well, because you guys don't have any college tennis. No, you literally, if you if like what's the big school in in Scotland? Saint Andrews. Do you think if Saint Andrews was offering tennis scholarships, me and a bunch of other smart kids wouldn't be like knocking down your door? Yeah, you guys just don't much. have any. That's why it's not. Big. You think I want to go to, like play at the Sorbonne? Like sure, sign me up. You know, I get uh-huh. a free free education at the Sorbonne. No brainer. Um, it's because you guys listen we have Scottish players
2: yeah
1: Eastern European players you know my my team was mostly international um which is why yeah. they were all comfortable leaving after a year. Um, nobody was really there to get an education. They were just there to okay. like sort of wayfind on their you know on their journey, which you know I, I don't fault them for at all. Yeah. Um, but it was um, but that that I think is why it's not a big deal. I would love yeah. the opp- I would have loved the opportunity to go and play in another country yeah. growing up. Um, yeah. For free, mm-hmm. that would have been incredible. Yeah. So yeah.
2: Like I like the the only the only vaguely big uni like university here that has like, you know. Like, it, it's insane because I went to uni on, like, this, like, tiny Scottish city way up north and, like, with, like, you know, one outdoor court that was, like, flooded all the time. And then we went to play, like, against... um sterling university which has these like it's the ones that andy murray plays at like when he when he's at home he goes and plays there he's like they've got like a big kind of poster of him up on the wall and stuff and it's just like totally different worlds like and i envisage that college tennis is always like that like you know the best facilities the best kind of courts and stuff like that is that kind of how it is or is that not no 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 no. we had to
1: walk through a jazzercise class to get to our courts i was so embarrassed when like the texas a&m team came to our (laughs) facility and they were like, are you joking? You have three courts." And I just walked through like an exercise class full of, you know, perimenopausal women. So no, it is not, <laughs> not like that. No quite. I mean, not Texas like and m has okay. a stadium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I think it That's really fair. varies. It really varies. That is true. Um, yeah. So I think for for – I mean, I don't want to disabuse you of any sort of no, no, no notions. No. But unless you're in a warm weather state with a very, very good tennis team, um, chances are it probably is a little more akin to your local tennis a lo- club. Local tennis club, yeah. At best, with like, you know, some mangy carpet and, you know, that, that whole thing. <laughs> and this is Division One. I don't even know about Division Two or 3 I'm assuming it's, it's you know, played in a uh, gymnasium or something. I don't know could be
0: anything could be anything real quick uh speaking about college tennis mm. um i'd love to talk about title nine um you yeah. and uso aduba um and so many others have benefited from title nine but chris everett's son was looking for uh college uh tennis um and uh he couldn't be able to find one i believe uh is yep, what i heard for sure um do you know? Um, I guess. Have you ever thought about this in any way of like how we can fix that for our young men yeah, here in we the could states? get rid of football. Is that like legislation or? No, no, no. we just get what? rid of football. Okay, yeah, I'm fine with getting <laughs> rid of Alabama football, Ohio State. No, 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 yeah.
1: football. I mean, it's a it's a terrible sport. It's owned by racists. It causes brain uh-huh. damage. It's yeah. responsible okay. for 110 uh, athletic scholarships. Um, Title IX says that there needs to be gender parity. Uh-huh. um or something close to it uh at universities so instead of expanding men's programs most have cut men to make up for parity for women which is why yep. it's easier for women to get ten- to get tennis scholarships certainly um uh-huh. than it is for men um but if you get rid of football the worst sport that there is certainly for your brain health it's just nuts to me to think like any kid is gonna like be allowed to play football um by any parent um you know, generations going forward. So that's a really easy fix that doesn't even require legislation. Um, okay. I'm not sure it would be popular in, you know, Tuscaloosa or uh-huh. – uh, Texas. Yeah, you know, no. Austin, Texas. But it's uh, it's a disgraceful sport that should be um, – you know, I mean, this is why they pay me to write a column for your sport. I'm not, you know, going to have some Namby- – it's also a really good question to end on because I got to jump in a sec. But I think for me, you know, Title IX could have meant a lot of things. and uh-huh. the. Male athletic directors largely chose to cut male programs that weren't football and so an easy way to get parity with that is To kill football football shouldn't be a money-making broadcast television right haggling Proposition for schools anyway schools are about educating kids and if people get prepared for professional leagues incidentally That's great, but a main facet of educating those kids is is offering the opportunity to integrate sports and study and I think for me you know, it's great that Title IX gave access to women. Um, it's it's it was a choice to make it come at the cost of other men, and it yeah. didn't have to. But I think yeah. making smart choices about what college sports means should we be, be be paying these kids or would I would prefer just getting the money out of it entirely? Yeah. You know, these schools are making. Money hand over fist and and hoarding it all and in in effect, you yep. should be getting taxpayer support to create gender parity with within kids and if you want to watch professional sports and you never want to watch a woman play a professional sport, that's your that's your druthers. but what the NCAA should be doing and what schools should be doing is a far, far different mission than what they're they're doing right now so that's that's like i said that's a great place to end it because it's like the culmination of a lot of the things we've talked about Um, but i gotta i gotta run in a sec to to go be a mom again so i'm i'm so thrilled that you guys asked me such thoughtful questions thank you that's absolutely thank
2: you no worries at all um like one final thing we will quickly ask is what do you envisage for andy murray this this year going forward is there anything left for him to do what do you think he can possibly achieve, if anything, left in the game. Like what?
1: I think Andy Murray should, um, upon the culmination of his next match that he wins, decide to retire and announce that he is a co-commissioner, along with Andrea Pekovic, of a joined ATP WTA tour, and maybe a third commissioner to be named later. So when you give him his award for Murray Musings, you can
0: <laughs> tell him I said that. <laughs>
2: How about that? <laughs> that is, that's a great Brilliant. prediction. Um, All right. And yeah, as, as you say, a fantastic place to end. Thank you so much for, for, for coming into Murray Musings. You're
1: welcome. Scott, Peter, thank you for having me. Thank, thank
2: you, you really so much. much. Bye guys. I'll see you soon. And there you have it, folks. We do hope you enjoyed listening to yet another episode of Murray Musings, where we sat down to chat with the co-founder of The Racket Magazine, Caitlin Thompson. On behalf of Peter and all of our, all of our multiple staff members here at Murray Musings HQ, I would just like to say a, um, a final massive thank you to Caitlin for taking an, an hour out of her time uh, to sit down and put up with our ramblings a while. Um, and a final thank you to yourselves as well for tuning in for yet another episode of Murray Musings. Um, so, yeah, with that all said, we will see you in the next one. Thank you.